The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little-known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. Previously on Black History Year, mythologist Lee Sumter sat down with Jay of Push Black to discuss how to survive an apocalypse when the subject of the whiz came up. Uh, then I think that sort of limits what we're able to both do now and imagine in the future. So I'm of the belief that we have a certain origin story, which for us in America, I think is, hey, our origins are in slavery. For many of us, that's where it starts. But uh, I believe even going to history, getting in touch with a new origin story, a new mythology of how things came to be, um, in addition to those that have existed uh, across time, uh, is a powerful way, or could be a powerful way of uh, really transforming our now and the future. Yeah, you know, it's funny, as you were talking, um, I, I, I have to admit that one of the images that popped into my head was the image of Michael Jackson as the scarecrow on the pole and the whiz. I don't know if you've seen the film. Have you seen the film? I've seen the image. I've not seen the film. Don't tell anybody, though. You know, I'm not going to take anybody's black card today. <laughs> um, not not on your podcast. I won't do yeah, that. Not but today. I will next say time. next time. But I will say that it's a very important um image i think that relates to what you said because the thing about what he was doing he played the scarecrow and and so that is how we discovered that jay host of black history year aka julian of push black had never seen the wiz an established cultural icon of black cinema history while the rest of the push black podcast team had some fun at julian's expense at the end of the recording session Little did we realize that the fun would follow him all the way home. I'm Len of Push Black, and this is a bonus episode of Black History Year. Our audio engineer, Ronald Young Jr., 
joined me in sitting down with Julian to discover why he stayed away from the 1978 film adaptation of the classic stage musical all these many years, especially considering the fact that Julian is a filmmaking and movie history scholar. We also discuss exactly how it is that Julian has now seen The Wiz and precisely what his thoughts are on the film. Not surprisingly, Julian equated his review of The Wiz with Push Black's mission of centering and activating Black liberation in our people, and the allegory he draws from his analysis is very intriguing. Check this out. In a different place, in a different time, different people. Nice. Thank you. And good luck. The genius who created me only took care of my dashing good looks, my razor-sharp wit, and my irresistible attraction to the wrong women. What he forgot was a heart. A lion without any courage. Oh! Can you help us, sir? What's in it for me? We'd be very grateful. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. There it is. So, Jay, you've seen The Wiz. My question is, how did it come about that you have now seen The Wiz? Twice now I've seen The Wiz. Uh, it was against my <laughs> it was against my will <laughs> at first. Right. So, of course, we're all aware of The Wiz uh, from just being in the black people in society. Uh, but I'm not a fan of musicals in general. So I actively avoid musicals. 
my wife's been trying to get me to see it for years and also shamed me for not seeing it. Um, so it was a combination of <laughs> us on this podcast and you all pressuring me, trying to additionally shame me <laughs> for not seeing The Wiz <laughs> and uh, be sharing that with my wife, who's like, uh, we do these family movie nights mm-hmm. at home with the kids, with the girls. And so the idea was to uh, excite them about this fantastical black film with singing and dancing and characters and get them excited about family movie night to do it. And I can't say no to that. So ended up uh, participating in that viewing. So it was a collaboration of all forces involved uh, conspiring. Conspiring against you. To watch against your better. For sure. (laughs) So. Uh, I just want to point out that I was uh, swept away with the crowd and bullying uh, Julian <laughs> for not seeing The Wiz. But that entire time, I also had not seen The Wiz. Wow. See what I mean? <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, see what I mean? And I want to be clear. Every criticism that Julian said is absolutely true. I also, I, it's not that I don't like musicals. I don't like musicals like The Wiz. Like there's a certain style of musical from the 70s and 80s where the first words that are spoken on screen are sang and I get angry. I'm like, no, you establish what's going on. Then sing me a song. Do not sing me a song to establish what's going on. I don't like that. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't like it. I saw it. I didn't like it. But I'm with you, Julian. You were right this whole time. Lynn, I'm sorry. I'm turned. (laughs) No, 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 no. Breaking news. Look at that. See how crowd thing works. I have the wrong kind of black. I'm sorry. I did the wrong thing. That is very true. That is very true. Um, Your black card will be revoked as well. But, um, that's fair. I'll, I'll turn. But it Jay, in. I, I do. I, I do want to backtrack a little bit and just ask the question. Um, Ronald has given us the the origin of his musical hatred. Why was it that you avoided musicals up to now? Yeah. So uh, I love films. Went to film school. I practiced filmmaking for years, and something about the just format doesn't align with my personal taste. I like to see um, if it's a story, the story progressing. I don't like pausing to sing and explain stuff that seems to slow down the pace Mm -hmm. for me. And um, even films that aren't necessarily traditional, straightforward linear narratives. I'm not mad at that. I, I like cyclical storytelling. I like when it goes off in certain places in unexpected ways, but it just seems to, you know, slow me down. And it's a certain style of music usually that's done in musicals that I've been exposed to where I can't even get down with this music. Cause I mean, I like all of right. us love music as well. So I have to actually get into what's being uh, sung, what's being like, what the lyrics are. So I'm picky about the music I listen to. And so being forced to listen to something that I'm not feeling and it's interrupting a story that I could otherwise be interested in. Like in general, I'm not trying to uh, uh, put myself through that. Can you name some of those those musicals that you're talking about that you've seen that you saw? Can I name some the of them? That you, yeah. Do you know? Like, I just want to get an idea of like which ones you're speaking of. Yeah. So it's too few that I. So I, I blocked them from my memory. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's purged uh, them. That's and usually the ones <laughs> I was exposed to 
were in film school. I remember the first one I saw in film school was called Meet Me in St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's like from the forties. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a rough one. Things like, it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, sort of, you know, white music. This is also uh, ironic. Had Judy Garland from the original Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz. Uh, it's so, it was like, I'm not really into the music that's usually put in. It's just not my, my style. Um, so I remember that one, but I don't remember much other ones. One of the mu- musicals, it, well, first of all, I wanted to ask, does that strictly pertain to musical films or you are averse to musical uh, uh, stage plays as well? Like you, you, you don't do Broadway. I've not been to a Broadway show. Uh, I've seen like, I've seen plays in community theaters where, you know, I think when it's done from a black POV and it is done in a way with music that is, I can get into a little more, I've been open to it. And, you know, the plays that I've, I've gone to, it's, it's fine, but I don't actively seeking, seek it out. And I'd rather not have it as part of my life, but when I can get into it, there's actually one that comes to mind. I don't know if y'all saw this. I don't even know if people like this joint, but it was the, uh, Remember Donald Glover did that joint with Rihanna a couple years ago? It was like a, yes, uh, a the summer remake one. of Black Orpheus in a certain mm-hmm. extent. That was actually yes. dope because I like Donald Glover and I like his his music. But I don't think that's like a critically acclaimed musical. But it's one of those things where the story had strong elements of blackness and black society and the music actually messed with. So Guava Island. Thank you. Guava, Guava Island. Yeah. And so... I actually liked The Wiz because mm. there's a lot of elements in it that I can connect with. Uh, some of the music, not most of the music, but some of the music, but I was able to get through the music because it actually added extra texture and uh, context to, I think, the the underlying themes of the, of the film. Well, first of all, that's the news. That's the headline. You liked The Wiz. You enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm not mad at it. <laughs> okay. Maybe the headline is, I'm not mad at The Wiz. But <laughs> now here's, here's the headline. Actually, I think it's actually interesting. I think it's good um, for reasons that nobody pitched to me when it was pitched to me. Mm. So why why were people, I guess they were just, you were pitched to it just as like this classic piece of cinema that you have to see a part of black Americana. Absolutely. Having watched it, what actually resonated with you the most when you now sitting down with it and watching it with your family. So seeing it twice now, and I actually think this is a film about black liberation. So I see this as, Dorothy being framed as a liberator of herself and others Mm -hmm. and going on this journey to find out what she's made of. Uh, She liberates people from oppression right off the gate. She gathers supporters along the way. She puts the collective above herself um, and she's able to she's a, a counter to the oppressive and effective and self-serving leaders that we see in the film in the form of the witches and the whiz that we also see in our society in the form of capital, black capitalists, in the form of black politicians. Um, and so she shows us that 
liberation will come from everyday people like school teachers such as Dorothy, black women and black men working together. Um, but it won't come from those who have put in, who've been put in place to keep us under control within this system, which I think Oz represents. Uh, my main critique is the fact that we don't get a chance to see who created this system, what factors led to the creation of Oz. And so it frames it as, as if we have to be just battling against ourselves internally as people in order to uh, find liberation. But it doesn't show the systems of white supremacy and coloniality that made it so we have to um, contend with each other in such ways. And so I think there's so many elements within that that caught my attention that I think relate to Push Black's definition of black liberation, specifically when it comes to the power to practice self-determination, mm-hmm. the ability for all black people to love and value themselves and one another on their own terms, the freedom to exercise social, political, and economic autonomy, and the opportunity for black people to live up to their full human potential. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. That is very, very um, astute a read of that, uh, especially when you know a little bit of the background of the film and that the writer, Joel Schumacher, was pulling from some teachings that he had learned from a controversial figure, um, Werner Erhard, I think is how you pronounce the gentleman's name, uh, at the time, who was like... Uh, doing a series of like seminars of mostly out, out in California that um, Joel Schumacher and even uh, Diana Ross uh, actually uh, attended um, on, on sometimes. And the, these seminars, these teachings of this, of this figure were basically about, you know, believing in yourself, being your, your um, your most accomplished self and that being a way to um, overcome any of your circumstances. And those were kind of like some of the messages mm. that he tried to bake into the writing of The Wiz that weren't necessarily in the original stage adaptation. So it's, it's very interesting that you, you pulled that out and aligned that with Black liberation, because I, I can tell you right now, Joel Schumacher wasn't thinking from a black liberation <laughs> point of view, you know, but but the, it, the the um, the alignment is, is definitely there if you, you know, take the time to, to see it. <laughs> 
Yes, I appreciate that context. And that makes sense. And from what I've read, a bit of that and some of the other, I guess, inspiration behind the creation of the film, it seemed the intention there was more so to focus on the individual believing in themselves. And what I saw in the film was that it's more of a collective effort. And um, I saw that Dorothy, which was interesting, um, interestingly portrayed as a school teacher, had the power to not just find that in herself, but to inspire that in others, Tin Man, Scarecrow, the the lion, um, in order to get to that point of collective liberation for for them and the others in Oz. So, Ronald, now that you, too, have sat down with The Wiz, uh, what are your thoughts on the film? Oh, I thought it was garbage. <laughs> Uh, like, here's the thing. I, I just want to make sure on the record, I really appreciate Julian's analysis and analogy, and I appreciate all that. And it definitely elevates the movie a little bit in my mind. But I got about 44 minutes and 20, 27 seconds into this movie. I was like, I've had enough. And I turned it off. It was right after she liberated mm-hmm. Michael Jackson from the crows and they sang and right a little bit after, you know what? No, it was right, right when they met the Tin Man and the Tin Man started singing the song. And I was like, nah, I can't do it anymore. So that was it for me. So it, and it's, here's the thing. It's not like, it's not saying that everything that Julian's saying wasn't wasn't true, because actually when you say that, I'm like, oh, no, I love it as an analogy. But it's right. When you compare it with the fact that Joel Schumacher wrote it, then I immediately am like, oh, wait, so we can create this analogy. But like, that's not that's not where the roots of this are. But if you just look at the production and then I did some I did some reading on it and I read this and I thought it was very interesting. I wanted to make sure I sure I shared it with y'all because I wanted to know y'all's take on on this. So I went to good old Wikipedia and <laughs> it said, it says, cause you know, it was a musical first on Broadway. It was a big, yes, it was a huge hit. Yeah. And it got adapted and this was the, the adaptation of it. So people got excited. So um, also I just want to use this as some foreshadowing for the color purple the musical, <laughs> which is coming out later this year. Just remember that the film was a hit. The Broadway show was a hit. I don't know what's going to happen with this movie, even though I'm excited to watch it, but keep that in mind as I read what I'm going to read next. The Wiz was theatrically released October 24, 1978, to critical and commercial failure, marking the end of the resurgence of African-American films that began with the exploitation movement of the early 70s. This movie ended an era of film in America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that I keep dropping bombshells in this conversation. But I'm very interested on specifically both of your takes on that. Specifically both of your because I read that and I was like, that's whoa, we shouldn't be watching the Wiz. We should be burning it. We should be burning it in the streets. But like we could have had 18 more shafts if this wouldn't have happened. Uh, I don't know if we needed 18 more shafts, but um You don't know what we need, Lynn. <laughs> I know we didn't need more shafts in Africa. I know that much. Um, no, no, no. That was that was like, we don't talk about that. <laughs> It is true because in the 70s, when you do have this explosion of black films, um, black action films, black comedies and and um, black America or slash black Hollywood as as much of there was one. If there, if there ever was one, was starting to feel themselves a little bit. There was an attempt to now, okay, well, hey, let's see if we can't, you know, 
find hits, find our creativity, find our mojo on in feature films in all the film genres, which meant in musicals. And like you said, Ronald, you did have this huge uh, hit, which was The Wiz, um, that debuted actually in 1974. I remember I didn't yeah. see it on stage, but my parents and my older sister went to see it on stage in 1974, came home with the album. Uh, they, My sister played the album for the next year in the house. So I knew all of these songs be- upside down and back uh, sideways. He's on um, down. He, I, we eased down down the road, the steps, the sidewalk, every place in my house, um, and it was it was glorious. I, I I loved it. I loved the Wiz just by by osmosis. Would listen to the, the cast album um, for about a year in my house, and it was this phenomenon on Broadway. And when you heard that it was going to be adapted, you were like, "Oh, perfect!" and the, Soon after, and I admittedly I didn't know this at the time. I was I was young, but I, I learned you could kind of feel that something wasn't right. People weren't really anticipating taking the whiz. My sister, who loved the stage play, was like, "Eh, yeah, I don't know if I'll see it." And it was a troubled production. And yes, the film was not a a a good film. I did see it when it came out in 1978. I have seen it several times over the years and since the first time I saw it in 1978, I will ride with Ronald as well. I was I am not a fan of the Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> but I like uh, your analogy. So y'all Julian. shame I me. Be... I should see it, but you're not a fan. Your um, you send me good. down the road no, 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 to no, no, see no. something that <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry we did Here's this. Here's the thing. <laughs> Okay, so let me jump in on on the black exploitation part of it. So there's an interesting thing going on with black exploitation where um, there's a lot of elements of it that can be traced back to the the black power movement, the inspirations mm-hmm. there. Um, I think, from what I understand, even Afeni Shakur claimed that I'm reading from. The wiki here claimed that every aspect of culture in the 60s and 70s was influenced by the black power movement. And so there's this idea that incorporating this black power ideology and permitting black actors to star in their own narratives was a better alternative than having them portrayed as pre- they previously were in uh, roles such as the Mammy and others like that. And so there's always this element yeah. of black folks in these movies fighting against the system. Um, and I, in many of them, right. Some of them are trash. A lot of them are, are powerful. I like sweet, sweet backs, badass song. And when I look at the whiz, when I read the whiz, I see elements of that in here as well. Uh, I would agree that the packaging of it isn't the best packaging, but I would also say the audience, I think Hollywood may have been trying to reach with this. I would highly doubt that, the majority of people going to the movies and paying for these tickets were black folks. I don't know the numbers, but I doubt it at that time. And so saying that this film, The Wiz, um, was not appealing mm. to the mainstream, I think I'm fine with that. As if it's a critical and commercial failure, none of the readings that I've seen of the film talk about elements of liberation. It's not for them. They can't connect with it. Um, it it hits in a different way if you're coming from a certain place, a certain community, and understand that there's things that 
there's references that that are in there that we see that they are not going to get. And so they're trying to compare that to the lily white version of this Wizard of Oz story from the 1930s. And it's not a it's not apples to apples because there's things that are discussed in terms of liberation um, and community in the Wiz that they just wouldn't be able to connect with. They, they don't have any reference points to in terms of just being able to go to the movies with their family and see this this film, uh, this, uh, this sort of film that was probably promoted as just this mainstream black take on The Wizard of Oz. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So it's kind of like if uh, like whatever the the whitest critiques of Black Panther were in 2018. Um, and I, I feel like the only difference I would say here is like this is still if you're saying that uh, Joel Schumacher wrote it, like there's still like white ideals woven throughout this movie, even though it has like so white ideas and white sensibilities. And so in uh, some ways, it's not a black film. In other ways, it is a black film. When it gets to theaters and becomes a critical and commercial like flop at that point, judged by mainstream audiences, as your point, it then goes on to become a cult classic amongst like black folks, Michael Jackson fans, people who like music, all of that, where it it becomes a cult classic among them. But I guess my question for y'all is, and Lynn, I'm specifically interested in hearing you pop certificate on this like so what happens then like when they say the black exploitation era is over what happens after the whiz if there's pre-whiz and post-whiz what happens immediately after the whiz in terms of film and julian i'm sure you have a take on this as well um well what happens in in black cinema is that it it really disappears from a power base. Um, I think actually one of the failings of The Wiz is that while it can be certainly coded as a black film because of its cast and what it is adapting, if you look behind the scenes, everybody behind the scenes, except for Quincy Jones, is pretty much a a white person and a, a white voice. And it's not hard to... Like when I watch it and look at some of the the sets that are are designed, it's almost as if it is from a white lens looking at the black experience, and it, <laughs> that annoys the mm-hmm. the hell out of me, man. Sorry, I'm laughing because you you said that, and I'm thinking about the Bunchkin scene again, and I was like, if white people looked at black people, what would they see? And now I see those munchkins and I'm like, yuck. Yup. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. I mean, it's just, it's just, there's so many elements of that, that, that annoy me. But then after the whiz, which is 1978, you still see there is an attempt to kind of like recreate the, the, um, the feel of the 70s because not long after this you actually 
do get another heralded cult classic, the the Last Dragon, but it really just starts to lose its mojo, and black cinema, for the most part, becomes very watered down. Um, most of the black cinema at that time, there are it's it's Richard Pryor. Um, Sidney Poitier actually doesn't really show up anymore uh, in black cinema and the black experience is more authentically felt or more oftenly felt in television um, on mm. good times and, and the, and the Jefferson is it though? Well, no, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's re- realistic, but I'm just saying that's where you start seeing black, the black experience more fully um, develop because you got also got to remember not long after the Wiz or maybe even right around this time is when Roots is bubbling up on television as well. Ooh. So that's that's where the black experience goes to be uh, experienced more so than in the theaters. So you're talking about um, where do black film go next and what's the value of of white folks telling yeah. these stories? And I'm I'll raise my hand first. I'm first one to challenge that in general and my thing is what can we read into it how can we take this and apply it to ourselves so the same way we as a people have been able to look at religions that were imposed upon us that didn't serve us right the way the bible was used against us and being able to find things um Mm -hmm. within those traditions that related to things that are more applicable and more familiar to us and where we came from i think that there's something there even with stories like this. Um, and I think there's, I, I read something deeper in the film that may be intentional, may not be intentional, but regardless, I think there's something of value to, to take from, uh, what we're, we're, we're being presented, even if it's not intentional. Um, and so there's several elements. So we, either, whether it's the, the characters, the setting, class, gender, there's all these elements in there that I think speak to ways that we interact with ourselves and with others in our community that are worth picking up in this conversation. Um, but once again, the biggest element that I see that connects with the point you all are talking about was that this was written and directed by white folks and they, I don't know if it's an accident that they hid the hand of white supremacy in the film to make it so, okay, it seems as if black folks just need to sort stuff out amongst themselves, but don't need to pay attention to the forces outside of this that are really pulling the strings around the ways that we're interacting with ourselves, others, uh, and in our environment. That's the literal definition of pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And there, <laughs> exactly. and it's funny because it's like a double, it's a double curtain now. Cause it's like, first we're looking at Richard Pryor. And then now you, and you nailed this already, Julian. You said this early on. You said, man, I really like this analogy. And you said you, you collected it all together. And then you said, I would have liked to have seen them talk about how this system got into place. But I imagine there's some executive that's listening to this podcast. It's like, what? What system? What are you talking about? There's no system. Don't, don't worry about that. Don't, don't tell anybody about a system. We're not worried about that. Fix your own problems. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Rise up.
there's a couple elements I want to raise up and, and get you all's thoughts on. Um, well, let me ask you this. The overarching thesis I have of Dor- Dorothy as a liberator, um, mm. do you all see elements of that or are there counters to that that you could you could put forth? I can see it. It's there. Um just from her arrival in Oz and killing the the witch and how she is meant to be an inspiration for everyone uh achieving you know their own liberation from their from their circumstance, so I can certainly see it in text um but in watching the film, I don't believe it in action um but that has more to do with the miscasting of mm. Dorothy by mm. Diana Ross. You weren't buying how she was giving it up in terms of the performance. Well, first of all, I'm not, first of all, I'm not buying that 33 year old Diana Ross is a 24 year old elementary school teacher. So no, they said 24. Yeah. And I was like, when she no. was with Aunt M, I was like, this is <laughs> her auntie. Like how, who, I thought they were like, exactly. Right. Right. I thought it was like a girlfriend's house. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying. Um, and, and especially again, I, I hate to go back to the original, um, but when you know that and and have heard Stephanie Mills, um, a young Stephanie Mills, an age appropriate Stephanie Mills, in this role, to then see Diana Ross whisper her way all throughout the room, oh my, it's just it's it's heartbreaking. Mm to me so no i'm i'm not buying her at all um there's actually only one two castings in in this in this film that i am buying um and that is ted ross and mabel king as the lion and um uh eveline yeah, the Wicked Witch, and and that's because they come straight from the stage play. Mm. They they are the only two that that actually survived from the the stage ad, adaptation. Um, and a third, I will give to Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. I think he does a very admirable job. I think he he, he um, it's probably one of the best performances in the, if not the best performance in the film. I, I always look a little side eyed at that because Michael Jackson is is in the film only because Diana Ross forced herself mm. into the role. Julian, you said you you mentioned like you're talking about uh, it being allegorical yeah. and those uh, and those takes, especially when it comes to Dorothy. I agree with your takes on it, but I want to point out that what we're doing now is what uh, they were doing to the original Wizard of Oz, the book. Uh, which is they had political allegorical interpretations of it, which which now is like I, it makes me wonder now in terms of because at the time they were like the argument was, is this a political mm. allegory? So they said the scarecrow was American farmers and their troubles in the late 19th century. The Tin Man was the American mm. steel industry and the Cowardly Lion was a reference to America's performance in the Spanish-American War. 
the flying monkeys were Native Americans, and the uh, the wicked west of the we- wicked west, witch of the west was the American West, and uh, basically the dominance of the American West or the uh, attempting to dominate the American West. And they also pointed out that the uh, bomb was actually racist towards Native Americans and wanted to see all of them exterminated, which explains why the fire monkeys were that way. So I'm saying all that to say. I like your interpretations, but I guess I would I would I would ask you in return, what does it mean when it's a, when an allegory is painted in black? What does that mean for like black folks in terms of like it only means that because if you go back to Christianity, oh boy, man, we're going we're going down a path. But if you go back to Christianity, it is a religion that is then imposed on black people, and then black people glean from it what is valuable to us. Uh, but remember, they had the slave Bible. They were like, hey, don't let them know about freedom. But we're sitting there watching the Wizard of Oz saying, like you said, a school teacher went by, collected a bunch of people and collectively went to the chief and they negotiated their freedom and took it upon themselves to actually get themselves out of the situation that they were in. So I guess my question is, like, does it mean does it mean anything different to you to know that when this is told as a white story, that there's a completely different uh, allegorical reference to it? So I appreciate that. I wasn't aware of that. And I think that um, makes it even stronger in my mind that uh, just like, I guess, with any text, right, there can be multiple interpretations, multiple meanings can be infused or uh, imposed on those. And so as I'm going through the characters, um, I'm also noticing different representations that these characters embody. Let me go through the list, right? So, So Dorothy pops in. Off top, she kills. They literally say she killed the oppressor when she gets there, right? She mm-hmm. takes the oppressor's shoe. She's filling the shoes of the oppressor, but with the liberation mindset. She has, she's taking this power and she's yep. doing something with it. She's ready to do something with it. Um, and then as we see her go on, um, she is able to liberate the the minds, the hearts, the courage of these characters, interestingly depicted as uh, men, right? A woman bringing that out of men in the community in order to go forward and do something that we may not have been created Uh-oh. to do or built in this society <laughs> to do. Uh, that stands out to me. And then we have Dorothy combating uh, oppressive labor when she goes to kill Eveline. And you see this scene where she once again kills the oppressor. And these black bodies that were once grotesque, dehumanized, um, separated from humanity are stripping off those masks. And these beautiful black bodies emerge and they're full of joy and hope as opposed to despair and a disconnect from the labor that they are participating in. Um, And then we get to there's more there, but let's let's move through it a little quicker. So the scarecrow. Scarecrow is interesting. When you first meet the Scarecrow, he's being held up and talked down to by the crows. The crows are telling him that essentially that he ain't nothing, you know, that he can't win. Um, right. And it, the way that they're speaking, of course, you should interpret this as other black folks from the community telling him that he can't go anywhere um, and that the knowledge or the information that he has it's not valuable, criticizing him for reading and trying to get out of this 
situation. So that's relatable in a certain extent. But once again, it's like, where did the folks that are around him, that are around us, receive that messaging from? Um, it's not just us saying we got to keep each other down and not us just not wanting to get out of a situation. But it, there's these other forces that have been making us have this uh, complex of inferiority and despair. And so when Dorothy finds him, she gives him a little bit of com- she sees something in him, liberates him from what he was held up on the little post or whatever. And they uh, they keep it going. Right. And she said she says something like. Uh, like you're just a product of negative thinking, which was interesting, which I think is relatable in our community as well. Yeah. Well, wait, well, Julian, were the crows black people? The way that they were speaking, I think they were intended to be black people. Does does that mean anything for your allegory? Yeah. Uh, once again, it means that because of the whiteness that's creating this film, there's that missing element of them uh, showing what's led to the these black crows um, trying to hold other black people down. And we've all experienced this right in our communities, but it doesn't start in our community. That's not where it starts. So there's something missing there. Right. So when we get to the Tin Man, it's interesting because you got this this hustler uh, who's used to taking advantage of people. He said all he has is dashing good looks, razor sharp wit and attraction to the wrong women. But he wants this this heart. Right. This idea of black men. Um, being built up in society. He even mentioned the creator, his creator made him with these traits, right? Looks with attraction to the wrong women, but no heart. I think that's relatable to us in society as well, to where um, as black men, we are not necessarily encouraged uh, to have feelings. We're encouraged to be stoic and to be uh, unemotional, heartless. It's just this yeah. machine, right? And so when introduced mm-hmm. to Tin Man, he's yearning for that. He know he's like, what's possible if I'm able to feel? Right? He feels he has love to give, but doesn't know how. He's like, he could be a healer. He could be more vulnerable, but he doesn't know how to tap in to that because of what's how he's been built up in this society. Um then we see the lion. The lion, my read on the lion, it's not as it's not as nuanced as the other ones, I think. It's pretty straightforward. Like, he was cowardly, then he has to find his bravery. I think that could have been fleshed out a little more. Um, and then we get to the whiz. They put their faith in this all-powerful man. You could read this. First, I read this as a preacher, but then you hear his backstory. He's this failed politician. And it's this idea of Black elected officials being put in positions of power to control the masses. He's literally controlling the masses, telling them what to think and what to care about and which way to go just based on his his whims, right? And so there's this history, uh, whether it's slavery, colonialism, even to uh, settler colonialism, of folks with black faces being put in places of control in order to control the masses of people. Those are also preachers, Julian. You nailed both, I think. Also preachers. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So I think it's a representation of both. And I think it comes across pretty clearly with the uh with the whiz, especially once we see that he actually does not have any real power any at power. all. Right. Then other elements. There's something interesting. Um <laughs> the uh the uh Glenda the Good Witch, 
we see her at the beginning. We're introduced to her the very opening shot in that mural. Did y'all catch that? Yep. Yep. Now, usually murals, often murals in our communities, um, meant to revere, commemorate folks that we find valuable in the community. Often they're folks that we've we've lost, ancestors, descendants. So my read on this from a um, sort of a traditional African religion perspective is that there's this idea of ancestral guidance. The witch, Glenda the Good Witch, being in this physical setting of the real world on this mural, depicted as an ancestor, but also being the one who guides Dorothy from the get-go into Oz and saying, okay, I'm going to guide you to help you find yourself. Right? When we call on the ancestors for, for guidance or for strength, like that witch is guiding Dorothy through all of this to help her see herself as a liberator, help her tap into uh, what's inside of her that she wasn't able to access with what she was already already doing. And I think the yep. connection there is even yep. stronger because at the end, the witch sings about um, about home. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself and home, right? So home is Africa, all right? For us in the diaspora, um, she says, if you know yourselves, home can be anywhere. To me, that speaks of knowledge of self in the way that Marcus Garvey spoke about a reverence for home, like, and uh, this quote, like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to be in Africa. Africa is in me. This idea that she's trying to get home. And then Dorothy's follow up to that about, in her song, she says, should we run away? Should we try and see? Or would it be better to let things be? Living here in this brand new world might be a fantasy. I read that as we've been dislocated We've been separated as a people. We've been in this environment that is not the real world that we have been accustomed to for thousands of years. What do we do about that? Um, and how do we accept that this is not the reality? And then go back to Glenn and say, okay, if you have knowledge of self, you know, you can tap into where home is. And for me, I believe for all of us, that is as African people uh, in, in Africa, but currently in America in this fantasy world. So that's my readings of the the characters. And then one sidebar, I found it hilarious that they have these scenes with these cabs. Where they're, they're trying to catch a cab, right, in this depiction of New York City. But the cabs keep saying off-duty and they keep driving away, right? <laughs> but at a certain point, they're like, you know, after twice, two times, Dorothy's like, you know what, I'm, I don't need anybody else to give me a ride. I don't need the folks who own these cabs who are likely not us. We don't see them, right? You don't see who's running the cabs, but you know there's a force there that owns them that isn't doing us any service. We don't need them to take us where we're trying to go. Dorothy and her uh, collaborators have found strength in each other and have found the road that they can go down together without you know, help from the outside. So those are my takes on the characters and some of the settings in relation to, sorry, some of the situations in relation to this allegory uh, and what could be applied to the world that we know and the experiences that we have as black people. One more critique with that though, there is a high value put on whiteness in the film, which I think speaks to the, 
critique we had about the creators of the film. So Aunt M initially says she needs to go below 125th Street. And from my understanding at that time, you know, below 125th was, you know, more so um, it was less black. Uh, It was more mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you need to go out there to figure it out. It wasn't, but there wasn't a call to come back and build in the community. It was a call back that, hey, there's home here. You can get nurturing here. But it wasn't like go out there and then come back here and mm. build, um, which is something that I believe in, which I would have liked to see, but of course not. And then there's this idea of the, the type of information that's valued. So all through the film, the scarecrow was quoting these white thinkers, Cicero, Francis Bacon, Confucius, the Bible, Shakespeare, P.T. Barnum, uh, Penrose. He was quoting all these that are revered as these. This is wisdom. This is knowledge. He has access to this, but the crows around him did not. That, that seemed to be put on a pedestal. But I did like the way at the end that he was like, you know, he said he had the quote and it's like, OK, that came for me. Now he's thinking for himself. Now that he's liberated, he's actually able to form his own thoughts and ideas. So it it could be seen as putting whiteness on a pedestal. It could also be seen as, okay, take what you can from around you, but then ultimately form your own ideas as you are liberating your mind and working to liberate your bodies and the bodies of those um, around you. And isn't that what we really have have done when we have been confronted with white media, white, um, whiteness in, in, on television and the movies or in, or in, in literature. Um, and we still, we take it in, but we pull from it, you know, what we need. It's, in fact, that's what you did with the whiz. What you just broke down is something that in any critique of the, of the whiz, whether it comes from a, a white gaze or a black gaze, that was the most, um, <laughs> that was some, that was some good shit right there, Julian. You I was kicking that. it. You, you, you brought, you brought, you brought the facts right there. I appreciate it more now as well. I think you, you're absolutely, well, I appreciate the, again, the allegory a, a lot more now. But like, come on, man! All that singing and dancing, chill out. And it's funny because I love Hamilton, so I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. With well, me. The, 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 the other the other aspect about about it, and and I don't want to harp on it, especially after you know what Julian just just laid down. Um, the other aspect of it is, like you said, the trappings of this story of this allegory um, could be be better. And there are there are moments where you at least me i just want you know one the camera to be in the right place so that we can really appreciate the dancing and the singing i want the some of the choreography to maybe be a little more um uh in sync with one another um because <laughs> it's just, it's uh, to, to put it mildly, I would I would have liked a couple more close ups of Mabel of Mabel King, so I could have appreciated her, her, her performance um, that much more. Um, that it is definitely looking at the film from a um, more of a critical mm-hmm. lens on a product on a comp- production level, um, and just wanting so much more of it, yeah. um, which makes me 
very excited for the restaging of the play that's going to be happening mm. in 2024. It's actually returning to Broadway. Um, and I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yo, let's go together. Look at that. Yo, I'm with it. We'd have to make arrangements. We'd all have to go to New York, so it's not like... Oh, <laughs> not sure I catch no cabs, but we're going we gonna to find our way to it. <laughs> Last George, let's take the train. We could all there take the go. same train and get on the train together. We're not. We're not getting on the subway to see the Wiz. There's the tra- no the subway, track, sta- friend. There's the no Amtrak. subway stations that we are getting on. That that was a very traumatizing um, moment. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious, uh, Julian. Was this, in, in fact, your daughter's introductions to the Wiz? And and. How was that for them? Yeah. So this was their first time seeing it. They were glued to the screen. Um, so as as we watch the film, as we watch anything, we talk about it. So I'll pause and we'll talk about it. Um, what does this mean? What do you think that that means? And so at, at this stage, they sort of pull out, um, based on the conversation that we have already, they pull out certain elements of, um, understanding what's right and wrong, how they should and shouldn't move, what friendship means. So there's certain elements of that that they're able to identify at this stage already. Um, but I think they were just sort of, you know, it's a visually interesting film to look at from the characters and costumes, the amusement parks and the songs. So I think that they enjoyed it. They watched the whole thing. And then that sort of uh, that tune that kept coming back, that refrain, we were sort of whistling that and humming that throughout the uh the house for the next couple of days. You know what I'm talking about? It's like this, uh, like, it's like, (laughs) it's so, uh, certain elements stuck out, uh, to them. So it was interesting to watch them, uh, to watch them, watch it and interact with them. Do you look forward to returning to the film with them? Maybe, you know, further along down the line to see if they pull any of your own similar thoughts from watching it i don't plan to actively seek this out again uh, but <laughs> and that's just my thing you're not gonna call the broadway with us yeah I, I don't know if i do the broadway thing but uh okay i can't go back on that uh we'll figure it out but and, and i think this is the big takeaway too like when it comes to media and how we as a people interact with it um, oftentimes it is just, okay, we need an entertainment. We need an escape. We got a lot of stuff going on already. Let's, let's go and get what we need from it for that purpose. Um, but there is this critical lens that we should take towards every type of media that's put in our face. Like, what does it say about us? Was it trying to say about us? What does it mean to us? What can we use what can we discard and how can we interpret these? Because these, these are stories, right? And that's what we talk about all the time at Push Black. Stories have been used forever to for human beings to uh, pass down values, beliefs, traditions, social norms um, in order to advance people's culture and society. And so how are we looking at media, film and whatever else um, as that and being able to use it in a way that is useful to us in the ways that we as black people have done forever, but just in different forms uh, over time. So for me, if there's any key takeaway, um, you can find that in unexpected places. I didn't expect to go into the whiz finding this because nobody 
framed it as if it would be uh, something that allows me to think about my life and my existence in a way that I think would be valuable. Um, and so I think there's opportunity both here, you know, for me and I think for all of us in general to say, OK, how can we use these stories the same way, um, you know, when we go folks go to church and there's a reading of that or wherever we go to, to find meaning in it, that'll be beneficial uh, to our lives and our situation as we work towards liberation. Thanks, Ronald. And thank you, Julian, for joining me on this special bonus episode of Black History Year. And if you, ladies and gentlemen, enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of the same, let your voice be heard at info at pushblack.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. We believe telling empowering stories on Black life and history can build a more liberated Black future. Being here with us, let us know that you probably feel that's important as well. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Targ Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, Somalia Rahman, Amber Davis, Gabby Roberts, and Darren Wallace. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Len Webb. Black History Year's executive producers are Lily Workner and Julian Walker. We'll see you in 2024 with another season of Black History Year. Peace.